If you turn in your Bibles this morning with me to the book of Acts, the book of Acts. We continue our study in the book of Acts, and our scripture reading will be rather long this morning. It will be from chapters 25 and 26. 25 and 26. The nature of narrative genre of scripture tends to be a little longer, but it is good to be able to follow the narrative as we go through it. Here, Paul has returned after his third missionary journey. He was taken under custody in Jerusalem, transferred to Caesarea, by which he will stand before three Roman officials, Felix, Festus, and King Agrippa. And here in chapter 25 and 26, he stands before Festus the second and Agrippa the third Roman official, giving a defense for his arrest. Acts chapter 25, verse 1. Festus then, having arrived in the province three days later, went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul, and they were urging him, requesting a concession against Paul that he might have him brought to Jerusalem. At the same time, setting an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore, he said, let the influential men among you go there with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them prosecute him. After he had spent not more than eight, day, eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea. And on the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. After Paul arrived, the Jews had come down from Jerusalem, stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. While Paul said in his own defense, I've committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. But Festus wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die, but... If none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then, when Festus had conferred with his counsel, he answered, You have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. Verse 13. Now when several days had elapsed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and paid their respects to Festus. While they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it 
was not the custom of Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense before, against the charges. So, after they had assembled here, I did not delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought before me. When the accuser stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate such matters, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there stand trial on these matters. But when Paul appealed to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear from him. Verse 23. So on the next day, when Agrippa came together with Bernice amid great pomp and entered the auditorium accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa, and all you gentlemen here present with us, you see this man about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me, both in Jerusalem and here, loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death, and since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. Yet I have nothing definite about him to write to my Lord. Therefore, I have brought him here before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate also the charges against him. Chapter 26. Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. In regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I'm about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all the customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So then, all Jews know my manner of life from youth, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time. If they were willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of the religion, and now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly serve God day and night. And for this hope, O King, I am being accused by the Jews. Why is it? considered incredible among you people if God does not raise the dead, or if God does raise the dead? So then I thought to myself that I had to do many hostile things to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received the authority from the chief priests, and also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And... 
As I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. While so engaged, I, as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and all those journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet, For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you as a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those in Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. But having obtained help from God, I stand this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing what the prophets and the Moses and Moses said was going to take place. Stating nothing but that, that the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Verse 24. And while Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning has driven you, driving you mad. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know that you do. Agrippa replied to Paul, In a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I wish to God that whatever, whether in a short time or a long time, not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. The king stood up, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, and when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another, saying, this man is doing nothing, doing, not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. 
O Father in heaven, no words could I ever say that would ever be better than your word itself. The reading of your word, O Father, declares what is true. And Father, we pray that we might learn and that you would open the eyes of our heart that we might see once again great and mighty things from thy law. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. Well, imagine to yourself that you have $90 in your pocket, in your wallet, or your purse. Maybe you have that right now. Maybe you have a $100 bill in your wallet. With that $90, you could buy yourself a new Kindle Fire or an Echo Dot, or you might score some nice workout equipment. You could even have a nice dinner for four or five people or go out for a really nice evening with some steaks and seafood with someone else. Or, if you lived in another country, you could buy yourself a slave. That's the average price of a slave in today's dollar worldwide. Slavery in the world has two chief characteristics today's world. It is cheap and considered disposable. In the 1850s, an average slave in the American South cost an equivalent of $40,000 in today's money. Today, the average cost is $90 worldwide. Modern slaves are not considered investments worth maintaining. In the 19th century, it was difficult to capture slaves, transport them to the United States, but when someone today was a slave, becomes sick or injured, many times they are simply dumped or killed. There are tens of millions of people in various forms of slavery across the world today, and researchers estimate that some 40 million people worldwide are enslaved generating $150 billion each year in illicit profits for traffickers in human slavery. About half of them are in forced labor. About a little over a third are in forced marriage slavery. About a quarter of them are children who are enslaved. And then about 12.5% are sold in forced prostitution. Unlike biblical times when some slaves were abused and some slaves were poorly treated, in biblical times there were those who were well-treated, some very well-educated as accountants, as doctors, as those who were in charge of an entire household of a master, in charge of raising the children, in charge of the master's finances. And some slaves in biblical times loved their masters so much they voluntarily bound themselves to their masters But in today's day, slavery is very much different. It is one of the greatest injustices in the world today. It is a gross injustice as people are held against their own will, stripped of their freedom, they're mistreated, beaten, abused, and when they get sick or injured, many times they're simply, as I mentioned, dumped or killed. Forty million worldwide people who are trafficked Christians face 
various injustices. People in the world faced injustices. And many times the question is, how will we respond? How do we respond to injustices such as this when we are the ones who are the victims who are being falsely accused of being taken advantage of, of being maligned, of being mistreated? Here, Paul, the Apostle Paul, has been imprisoned for two-plus years. He's been beaten, he's been arrested, he's been held without an accusation that has substantive proof at all. Yet he faces here trial after trial, ruler after ruler. Here he faces two powerful political leaders of his day as he stands before a governor and a king to face these unjust threats, to face these unjust accusations, and yet what does he do? How does he respond? How does he face these particular injustices done to him? For if we imagine the Apostle Paul having been imprisoned, if we imagine the Apostle Paul being unjustly accused, nearly beaten to death with mobs of people after his life because of false charges, he is being held. How do we respond? How can we respond? We see here Paul responding in five particular ways. Five particular ways. And we learn from the incidences here in these two chapters as he stands before these rulers of Rome, how he stands before them and the perspective that he has. The first comes in the very first chapter in 25 in this long section of texts that in which he has been arrested and he has been in prison for two years. And the lesson I think we learned there is that we too, as Christians, should not be surprised when we are the ones who face unjust threats, unjust accusations. Paul is standing before Festus, the new governor who was taken over from Felix. And Felix was the previous governor, and he was not a good governor at all. You recall that Felix was the first governor he stood before, and Felix was a former slave. The first slave in all of the Roman Empire to hold a governorship, not because he had earned it, but because his brother was friends with the Caesar placed him in a particular political position, and his predecessor had somehow alleviated his position, and so he arose to that position. But he was a very, very abusive and vile and brutal governor, Felix was, and he had recently put down a rebellion in, in Caesarea in such a way that the Jews rose up, and they went before Caesar in large complaint and Felix was recalled in disgrace. And so here we face the second of the two rulers, Festus, the next governor in line, in the line of a nobility in which he inherited not just his nobility, but he inherited all of the problems that Felix had created because there was tremendous animosity between the Jews and Rome because of Felix's brutality. So Festus, as soon as he becomes governor, it says in the very first Verses there, having arrived in the province, three days later, went up to Jerusalem. He went up to Jerusalem because this was a problem, a major problem. The problem of governing the Jews who hated Rome because of the brutality of Felix, the previous governor. And so his first order of business was to make nice with the Jews. Three days later, he went down to Jerusalem. 
Now, at this point in time, Paul had already faced tremendous, tremendous injustice having arrived there, and he was already a victim of being beaten by the Jews. He was rescued by Rome. He was brought before the Sanhedrin. He was almost torn apart by the mob there, and then he was the target of a death squad who wanted to kill him. They snuck him out up to Caesarea, and he was kept under arrest. Here he was accused. None of the charges were true. But he had been dogged by the Jews for many years. And they followed him around and grudges against him last a long time. And the chief priests, it says, and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul. And they were urging him to request a concession against Paul. They didn't want a trial. They wanted a summary judgment that was going to be given by Festus just in condemnation of Paul. They wanted him to be dragged back down to Jerusalem, not to try him, but that they might kill him along the way. He had been accused of sedition, which is a violation of Roman law. He had been accused of sectarianism, which was the violation of Jewish law, and he had been accused of sacrilege, the violation of God's law. That is why Paul says in verse 8, while Paul said in his defense, I've committed no offense against the law of the Jews, that is sectarianism, against the temple, that is sacrilege, because they had considered temple as virtually God's place. And then Caesar, that of sedition. And Paul, in his defense, levied the idea that he had committed no offense against any of those areas, nor could the Jews ever prove anything to the such matters. So, after the first trial under Felix, it didn't go anywhere. But Felix wanted to appease the Jews, so he kept him under custody, under arrest. Festus, likewise, wanted to placate the Jews. The Jews just hated Rome. They just hated Felix. They got him out of power, and now Festus had inherited all of those problems. And so now, Paul, Paul, they said, why don't you, why don't you just evoke a summary judgment against Paul and have him guilty, and then we'll punish him. They wanted him to come down to Jerusalem so that they could kill him. But Paul knew that he would never, ever receive a fair trial in Jerusalem. So what does he do? He basically says, look, I am standing in the place where I should stand. I am standing in Caesar's tribunal, verse 10, and where I ought to be tried. I've done nothing wrong to the Jews, and as you also very well know, he pleads with them. And if I'm a wrongdoer, well... I have no problem dying, but I've done nothing wrong worthy of death. I appeal to Caesar. I appeal to Caesar. That's what he does. That declaration takes it out of Festus's hands, and it lands it in Caesar's. The current court would not judge him fairly. Paul says, well, the Jerusalem court will not also judge me fairly. I'm where I ought to be, and if you will not judge me fairly, I appeal to Caesar. Facing false accusations, being the scapegoat, being the one who is unjustly treated, unjustly accused. That is to be expected for Christians. That is to be expected for Christians. If you're falsely accused or you're mistreated or you're unjustly threatened, that is not something that is to be of surprise for you. Maybe you have been one that has been mistreated or 
threatened or unjustly accused in the past. Maybe you've simply had a difficult time in life. Maybe you can relate to Paul. Maybe you sit and you feel that maybe you haven't had a fair hand dealt to you in life or that difficulties in your life are harder than others as you compare yourself to others and you feel like you are the one who, why, why is it that I have to face this particular trial? And you imagine that Paul would be sitting there after years wondering why has he been stuck here? After all, he has done nothing wrong. Maybe you feel depressed or feel sorry for yourself. The book entitled Ordinary People, Extraordinary Faith. Many of you are familiar with Johnny Erickson Tata, through a diving accident, had left her a quadriplegic with very limited mobility. She writes in that book, not but two minutes ago, after hacking and coughing, I turned to Francie, my secretary, and confessed, I'm feeling a little blue today. Maybe you felt depressed or blue. But she had faced a week-long bout with the flu. Hadn't helped my spirits. Coming back to the office to face piles of work on my desk hadn't helped either. And she, of course, was a quadriplegic who had limited mobility. It makes life all the more difficult. She writes, and so after fits and starts at the computer, my shoulders start slumping. Okay, I admitted, I'm downright depressed. Then I spotted a perky bouquet of flowers that had arrived earlier the day and said with much contrition, wait a minute, what in the world do I have to be depressed about? My friend Carla Larson, bless her heart, heard I'd been under the weather and sent me the flowers. I'm the one who should be sending Carla gifts, she writes. A severe condition of diabetes is at the root of her problems. She had suffered a heart attack, a kidney transplant, the amputation of both legs. She is legally blind, has endured countless angioplasties, and had lost several fingers. I wrote about Carla in my book, When God Weeps, explaining that when I met her at one of our Johnny and Friends family retreats, I said, Carla, I can't believe you were able to make it, to which she replied, I thought I'd better come before I lost any more body parts. She had not lost her sense of humor. I think of Carla when I'm asked, who inspires you? Who are your role models? My mind, like a computer, sorts through a list of possibilities, but I always come up with Ordinary people like her. I also think of the women who get me up in the morning, what inspirations they are to me. There are eight different gals who on seven different mornings come to my house at 7.30 to fix me coffee, put my legs through exercises, give me a bath, get me dressed, sit me up on my wheelchair. These are average women the kind who stand in front of you at Walmart or whom you run into at Starbucks, they are a seamstress, a hairstylist, a bookkeeper, a secretary, a data entry supervisor, mother and a daughter, and an administrator. They have homes and family members, mortgage payments, and kitchen appliance problems. Yet one has had an abortion. Another is divorced and a cancer survivor. One is a recovering alcoholic. 
Another has a husband with Parkinson's, and when she isn't at the office, she tends to aging parents and a mother-in-law. One is an ex-hippie who used to do drugs. Another is a single woman in her 60s. How do we take this measure of faith God has given us and make it extraordinary? It's all a matter of focus, unquote. I'm sure you can imagine that the Apostle Paul might have been tempted to feel sorry for himself, facing the injustice, facing what might seem unfair, that maybe you feel that I have had such difficult times in my life. Why is it that I have faced this when others haven't? Why is it that I have this difficulty when others haven't? Why is it that my family or my future or my life is like this? The Lord has granted to us a particular path, yet we think of people who have such a wonderful attitude like Carla Larson, having lost both of her legs, kidney transplant, heart attack, lost a number of fingers, is legally blind, is a person who suffers from diabetes. Time and time again, can you imagine somebody like that? And yet she is the one who sends a quadriplegic, the head of a vast ministry named Johnny and Friends. She is the one who sends flowers to cheer one another up. I believe Paul saw his perilous situation and the reality that it is not oppressive, but it is an opportunity. It is an opportunity to shine. Because the more difficult life is, oftentimes, the greater the opportunity to show that you, by the grace of God, can rise above the circumstances. What an opportunity to testify about who Jesus is. Whether you've lost one or two legs or have multiple health problems, you have an opportunity to shine for Jesus because by the grace of God, he bears us through those trials. So that's what Paul does. He faithfully testifies Chapter 26, despite the fact that he's accused, he faithfully testifies. And he goes before this man named King Agrippa. King Agrippa so that he, not to exonerate himself, that is not the point of his testimony. He is not there saying, look, I've done none of these things, and here's the evidence by which I've done none of these things, and you need to free me. No, his testimony is, I've done none of these things, and here is what I have done, and it is all about Jesus. He goes before this king named King Agrippa. And sometimes you might get confused because of so many Agrippas, but he was not a very, he did not have a very good heritage. He did not have a very good heritage. King Agrippa was the latest in the line, a long dynasty of terrible Herods. Herod, who was his great-grandfather, was King Herod, who uh, asked the wise men to tell him where Jesus was so he could go and, quote-unquote, kill him. But when they didn't tell him, well, he went and murdered all the male children in the vicinity of Bethlehem two years and under. And then his great-uncle, his grand-uncle, I should say, his grand-uncle, Agrippa II, was the one who murdered John the Baptist. And his own father, Agrippa I, was the one who has executed James. And he was the one who imprisoned Peter. And because he didn't give glory to God, he, his own father, was the one who was eaten by worms. And here he comes as Agrippa, the one who has this heritage by which is not very well, not very well, Not very well at all, period. And here Paul's testimony has this whole, whole 
um, testimony about what God had done in his life. And had two main themes in his testimony. Number one, of his own transformed life. Of his own transformed life from a well-known past as a persecutor of Christians to a follower of Jesus. And the second point was that he preached the resurrection of Christ, which proved him to be the Messiah. And his testimony ends in 2618. Why did he tell these things? To open the eyes. His desire is to open the eyes that they may turn from darkness to light, from dominion of Satan to God, that they might receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith. That's what the testimony is all about. It's not free me because I'm innocent. It is the testimony of who Jesus is, what he has done, and how Christ has changed my life by turning from darkness to light and receiving forgiveness and eternal life. Paul sees this oppressive situation as an opportunity to stand before the Roman governor and the Roman king to be able to say, look at what God has done in my life. On Friday, a number of us went to Mission Fest we heard and were encouraged by the testimony of a man named Tas Sada. Tas Sada in the 1970s or so, 1970, he was, many of you recall the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO. He was a sniper for the PLO. He was Yasser Arafat, the late Yasser Arafat's chauffeur. He was a Muslim immersed in anti-Israeli activity. He had a past that was very, very violent. He would shoot up Christians' homes. He would throw grenades into them. He was an assassin. And as a young man, he came to America. And here in America, by the grace of God, he started a family and God saved him. But later on, he returned to Qatar. He returned to Qatar to face his family and his former boss, Yasser Arafat head of the PLO. In his reunion after 34 years, this was his testimony. He said, we spoke about the old days. We recalled the victory at Al-Karamath. I admitted I had made some dumb mistakes along the way. Do you remember my escapades, Mr. President? Referring to Arafat. He responded, of course I do. You were one of my worst men. You were ruthless and mean. A lot of others followed your example, and it cost us much goodwill in Jerusalem. Eventually, he returned to the subject of the church, and he spoke of how many civilians had been killed over the years. Yes, both sides have suffered many losses, I said, nodding my head. And at this point, of course, he is a believer. But these are exactly the things God wants us to relieve. At the end of time, we will all stand before him and we will have to explain our parts in these events. I ask myself sometimes what we are to say on that day. He nodded thoughtfully. Mr. President, I continued, do you know how God created man? Of course. He made us from the dust of the earth, Arafat said. That is true, but have you ever considered how he did it? Not really. Well, God, ah. Uh, Majid, the Almighty, the Glorious, spoke the world into existence. He said, be, and everything took form, except for man. Then he said, let us make man in our image. That is similar, that is similar to God. In the Quran too, Allah says, I am going to place in the earth a successor, a steward, 
a Khalifa. That is what the Bible describes in Genesis 2. You know, Mr. President, I continued, for God to do something like this must mean that he cared a great deal about humanity. I tell you, I was shaken and tears streamed down my face and I fell down before him and wept. Why is that? Arafat wanted to know. Why were you crying? He said, because if you will pardon me, Mr. President, do you remember I had been a sniper? I looked people straight in the face before I took their life. I saw them through my scope. Now, when I read the story of how specially God had created us, the faces of those people come back to me in a second. I feel terribly small and miserable to take a human life that God has shaped with a great deal of effort. I felt I had passed all boundaries in doing that. I didn't even deserve to go on living myself. I wanted to die got up from my chair, from my knees, and sat on the chair again. I looked into the eyes of Yasser Arafat, the man for whom I would have given, gone through fire and water. I saw tears there. God has forgiven me. He is so merciful, Ta said. It's forgiven. Even when we erase someone's life. He is willing to give us inner peace. That is what happened to me 11 years ago. It radically changed my life. And he said, now let me add something very important if I may. Enough blood has been shed. Enough hatred has been sown. Enough is enough. Let us come to peace. And that peace comes only through Jesus, the Christ, unquote. God had transformed a murderer named Paul, so that he might stand before the Roman governorship, Roman king. God had transformed a man named Tassara, a former assassin, a hater of the Jews, a man who was cruel, so that he might stand before his old boss, a terrorist, to tell him that peace only comes through Jesus Christ. And if you are a Christian, that is our commission as well. To say, I have a transformed life, and it is God who has called me to testify solemnly of the grace and the gospel of God, Acts 20, 24. That I might be an ambassador, 2 Corinthians 5, 20, for Christ, and as though God, it says, were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That is what we are to be, ambassadors for Christ with a message. Be reconciled to God, like Paul, to stand before others and not plead our own innocence for our own sake, but to plead our own innocence for Christ's sake. Then, thirdly, we are to testify, even though we may be thought of as fools. What Paul was saying this Festus said, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. To Festus, you know, the Roman mind. The Roman mind, dead people do not rise back to life. That's just simply crazy, Paul. Paul, you must have lost touch with reality. That is what many times people have thought of others. Throughout history, there are always doubters. People who doubted the Wright brothers. People who doubted... Christopher Columbus, thinking that he was going to sail off the edge of the earth. People who doubted Robert Fulton when he started the steam engine. Whatever it was, there will always be people who doubt. And there will be people who would doubt the message of Christ. But that's okay. 
People doubted Christ as well. They said in Mark 3.21, when people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he, meaning Jesus, has lost his senses. And the scribes who came down, Mark 3.22, said he is possessed by Beelzebul, or he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. That is the message of the cross. The message of the cross to those who are unsaved is foolishness, 1 Corinthians 1. It is foolishness to those who are perishing. So don't be surprised if people think that you simply are out of your mind. Fourthly, we are to be soul winners, soul winners. Paul comes to the point in verse 25 of 26. At this point, King Agrippa brilliantly calls him, Paul does, to his familiarity with the Jews after he has faced this injustice, but he's seen an opportunity to testify. And after his testimony, he was called a fool. But then he calls upon King Agrippa in an attempt to win his soul. The Jews believed in a resurrection. So, you shouldn't be surprised to King Agrippa, who's familiar with the Jews. Paul asks him if he believes in the prophets and places him in a conundrum. If he would affirm Paul's contention, then he would simply be... Proclaiming Jesus is the Messiah, as Paul says. So Agrippa sidesteps it. And he says this, In a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. The phrase is actually better phrased. Do you think you can persuade me to become a Christian in a short period of time? And Paul's gracious response as a prisoner in chains is basically this. Whether it's a long time or a short time, my desire is that all who hear this message would become like I, except for these chains would become a Christian just like me, except for these chains. His focus wasn't on his own freedom or his misery being in prison for two years. His own focus wasn't on how unjust, unjust he's been treated. His desire was what? I would wish that God, to God, verse 29, short time or a long time, all who hear me today might become such as I, except for these chains. He wanted to win their souls to Christ. Just as Proverbs 11.30 tells us, the fruit of, righteous, of the righteous is a tree of life. He that winneth souls is wise. He that winneth souls are, is wise. Is that you? Are you one who really desires, when faced with unjust treatment, or when you're in a situation where you seem to have received the short end of the stick, desire more than anything else to shine brightly for Christ and say, this is an opportunity to win people to Christ? Or do you feel ashamed of the gospel? Might I suggest, even when you look around your workplace, many times Muslims are more bold to wear their headscarves to work than Christians are to wear a Christian t-shirt. Are you ashamed? Are you ashamed or would you be to be known as a Christian at work or at school? Those who might wear their head coverings or wear their turbans from whatever religion they might come from are more bold than you. You embarrassed to talk about being a Christian or pray in public before meals or to talk about your own faith with others? Would you say that the Apostle Paul would ever use some of the excuses that we might use Oh, I don't want to talk about my faith so publicly. I don't want to push these kings and governors and Jews away. It might offend them. They might think I'm crazy and run from me. 
Whenever I share, they push back, and so I don't talk about my faith in Jesus so much anymore. I doubt such a thought would ever come out of the Apostle Paul's mouth. No, he was bold. He took advantage of the opportunity, and he stood before them innocent of sin. That is our last point. He stood before them innocent of sin. With that, Agrippa and Festus, as well as others, would concur. This man has done nothing, nothing deserving of death. He had not appealed to Caesar. He would be set free, they said. And it's a lesson for us. Whether we are accused or not, whether we have a difficult time or not, we are to be people who stand with integrity, innocent of sin, with integrity. That is such a rare commodity, it seems today. You turn on the news, there are all sorts of issues with integrity. Scandals from politicians, from sports figures, from the oil industry, from those in Hollywood, from those in the government to Wall Street, all attract some type of skepticism because the things they say and the way they conduct themselves is not consistent. The higher the profile, the greater the scrutiny whether you're a sports star or a president or you're a part of the oil industry or the government or the, or, or the financial industry or whatever, we live in a world that is of such great compromise where people compromise their testimony and they compromise their integrity. In the book entitled The Power of Integrity, it suggests to us a number of compromises that maybe even you might face. People who say they believe the Bible and yet attend churches where the Bible isn't taught. People agree that sin must be punished, but not if those sins are committed by your children. People oppose dishonesty and corruption until it is them who needs to confront their bosses, possibly losing their job. People who maintain high moral standards until their own lusts are kindled by unscriptural relationships. People are honest, and they laud honesty. It's good to be honest until, well, a little dishonesty will save them money. People hold a conviction until it is challenged by someone they admire or fear. Integrity is what helps to keep our faith strong and live in faith and not in fear. Keeps us from sin. Integrity, as Paul stood before the Roman court, he was found to be innocent. That is how we are. We may face times, and we will likely face times, and maybe you face times now. When you're a unjustly treated or you've been down because of the situation that you're in. See it as an opportunity, an opportunity to testify of what God has done in your life, an opportunity to shine all the brighter, an opportunity to rise above those circumstances and tell of what Jesus has done for you and how Jesus is beside you and helping you, about how Jesus can save, and how Jesus forgives. You may be thought of as a fool, but we are to be people who desire to win souls, win souls for Christ, and stand with integrity before a world that has very little of it. Let's bow together in prayer. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful, Father, for the truth of your word. And we're grateful, Father, for the example of the Apostle Paul. Father, we could only fathom what it might have been like to have gone through all of the things that Paul had gone through, the stonings, the beatings, the scourgings, and more is to come when he will face a shipwreck, his own life, 
And Father, so often, Lord, we face difficulties are but a fraction of what he faced. And out of our mouths come discontentment and complaining. Out of our mouths come a disillusionment. Out of our attitudes come a depression, a discouragement, because our eyes are so much so focused on ourselves. Oh God, may you help us to focus our eyes upon you, the one who brings to us both blessings and trials, both your grace and testing, that your grace might be even made more great. And may we testify of who you are and what you have done, knowing, O oh Father, as it's been said, the darker the night, the brighter the light. In Jesus' name, amen.